Uh, when we lived in California, Sarah and I used to take the kids to her family. Her family had a beach house in Oxnard, California, and we would go there maybe a couple times a year. And when we would, we'd stay there uh, for a week at a stretch or so, and during that time, we'd go down to the beach quite a bit. And I remember that we had to keep an eye on the kids because sometimes there would be a longshore current running along that section of beach. And it wasn't, you know, like particularly dangerous or anything, but if you went out into the water and you weren't paying attention, you would just kind of drift away with the current up the coast. And it was really easy for the kids to get lost in play. They'd go out there swimming and diving into the waves and hunting for shells. And without knowing it, they would, little bit by little bit, be moved off up the beach. And it could be alarming for Sarah and I. We would look up from our book or sandcastle or something else and find that our child was not where we thought they would be. So then we'd have to uh, hike up the beach and yell and get their attention and tell them to come back down to where we were. And most of the time, the kids were more surprised than we were that they had drifted so far. They just weren't paying attention at all. And when we got their attention, they'd look around and go, this isn't where we thought we were either. And the reason why I tell that story is because sin is like that. There's an old quote, and I'm not sure who first said it. I tried looking it up on the internet, but it was credited to different people. So I'll just put it here as an anonymous quote. But it's been quoted all over the place. Maybe you've heard it. It says, sin will take you farther than you want to go keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. The entry point to sin usually seems like no big deal, but once you've entered into it, there is a current which begins to carry you away. Little bit by little bit, you drift further and further afield. Consider the story of Lot, for example. You might remember the story from the Old Testament. Lot and his uncle Abraham, they were were fighting. They were squabbling. And so Abraham decided he would be the bigger man. He kind of takes the higher road. And he says, okay, well, here's the whole land in front of us. You take whichever place you want to go, and I'll go to the other place. And Lot looked, and he saw the beautiful, fertile land down by the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he chose the better part for himself. And from that small, seemingly insignificant, but selfish decision, he moved his family down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and you know the rest of the story. If Lot could have foreseen how far he would drift, he would never have gotten into the water to begin with. Or what about Samson? In his younger days, let me ask you this, did Samson dream of being blinded, humiliated, and a chained spectacle in the temple of Dagon? Well, no, obviously not, of course not. But that is how far he drifted. Little bit by little bit, he was drawn away from God. And by the time he came to his senses and looked around, where was he? He was far, far from where he had used to be. And we could keep going. There's lots of examples. The entry point is small, seemingly insignificant. But once you're into it, there is a certain current that begins carrying you away. And we see a similar pattern playing out in David's life. 
For four chapters, chapter 27 through chapter 30, these chapters chronicle a a season in David's life in which he wanders away from God's will for his life. During this time, he will drift further and further into sin. Insofar as the Bible records, David wrote no psalms during this period of his life. Way back in chapter 27, which we studied almost two months ago, we saw the beginning of his drift, which began innocently enough by speaking some error to himself in his heart. Chapter 27 begins with the words that David said to himself in his heart, and then every word that he then proceeds to say to himself is basically not true. And we saw the beginning of the drift in his life. He took those words, he harbored them, he acted upon them, and now look how far he has drifted in the following chapters. David stops looking to God for safety and protection and instead looks to the Philistine king Achish for those things. We then find David living a double life that is founded on lies and murder. He's paying for his keep as a mercenary and a bandit by paying tribute to King Achish, the sworn enemy of God's people. He is actively enriching the enemies of God. And he does this how? He raids neighboring tribes. And he kills all the witnesses so that he can make it look to King Achish that he has been, as though he has been raiding and killing his own people, the Israelites. And the clear implication from the Bible is that normally it would be his practice to let people live. But because he doesn't want any witnesses to these deeds who can go back and tell Achish what he's actually up to, he just murders everyone. In chapter 29, he even joins a Philistine army invading Israel. It seems unlikely that David would have actually gone through with fighting against his own people. But before his loyalty to Achish can be tested, the other Philistine lords come to Achish and they say, we don't want him with us in the battle. We're afraid he's going to turn against us. How better could he win, win back the favor of Saul than to turn on us in the midst of the battle? And so Achish reluctantly says to David and his men, you have to go. The other lords don't feel comfortable with you being here. So David and his men leave Achish and return home to Ziklag. That's the whole substance of chapter 29, this whole misadventure with him going up with Achish and then being told he has to go back home. And now we pick up things in chapter 30. And it says this, Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Something I think we have to do is because the Bible is such an ancient book, 
is sometimes when we read these accounts, we read them through the foggy lens of history. And they're kind of robbed of the raw human feeling of the moment. But I want you to put yourself in the shoes of David and his men, and when they come home, imagine your family and your community come back from a trip or something, and you arrive home, and the whole town is just a smoldering ruin, and everyone is gone. This is a horribly bitter moment. And it's made all the more bitter by the fact that David and his men have been throwing stones while living in glass houses. The kind of scene that David and his men arrived home to would have been very familiar to them, these hard men. Because how had they been making their living? By doing this exact same thing to other towns, to other people's families. And now their families have been taken by who knows who, and if they remain alive, are experiencing who knows what. Maybe they thought about all the merciless things they had done to other people's families. We can only wonder what emotions and images and memories filled these hardened men as they looked at the burned-out ruins of their own town. But verses 4 and 6 describe, in the deepest language that can be found, their grief, their bitterness of soul, their despair. And your heart goes out to David in this moment because this is the worst sort of mess to be in. Because he is responsible. Why are they living in Ziklag? Why have they departed from God's will for them? Why have they sought refuge under a pagan king? David in this moment must have been tempted to feel that he was reaping the consequences of his waywardness and his sin. And if his men can't get their hands on whoever did this to their families in their town, David will just have to do. They openly begin talking about stoning David. Verse 4 says that they wept until they had no more strength to weep. And verse 6 says that they were talking about stoning him. But at this moment of utter despair and gloom, we come to the first encouraging sentence that we have encountered since David began his long wayward drift to this point four chapters earlier. Because right at that point where they are talking about stoning him from this place of bitterness of soul, it says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And because that begins with the word but, I want you to think about this for just a second. What's, what's being said by God and his word is that David's response to these things was different than the other men. They respond by blaming one another. We all know people like this. If you've worked with, in any kind of a group and things get stressful and things are going wrong, there is always somebody or some people who will cast about to find, find somebody to assign blame to in this moment. They're not really taking responsibility personally. They just need to vent. They need to unload on somebody for this happening. And so they begin to say, well, David's the guy. And they're bitter in soul. But then it says, but, but, David 
strengthens himself in the Lord his God. David is unique in the way that he's responding to adversity in this moment among his men. Within this group of men, David is responding in a way that's unique from the rest of them, which is by strengthening himself in the Lord his God. So what does that look like? That's a good question. This passage, that, that verse, chapter, verse 6 of chapter 30, reminds me of 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, he says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. David's troubles began when he began to look away from God for counsel and for protection, and instead to look within himself and to form this forbidden alliance with Achish. In this moment, when David strengthens himself in the Lord his God, it just it makes me remember walking up the beach and calling out to my children and saying, come on back. David has drifted so far from where he used to be, so far from where God has called him to be, so far from where he should be, and God patiently comes and calls him back, and David responds. David responds by coming back to God. What this moment accomplishes was to, was to cause that return. It says that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God, and here are some things that David said about trouble. In Psalm 9-9, these are the words of David, he says, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. In Psalm 27, he says, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will, con he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Psalm 32, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Psalm 37, for the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Psalm 54, for he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. If you are in trouble, listen to what God says to you. And here are some things from the Psalms that David wrote about what God says to you in trouble. Here we just heard what David says to God when he's in trouble. And he also, in the Psalms, we also encounter God's heart towards us when we're in trouble. Hear these words. This is David talking about God. It says, Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, says God, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. And in many respects, this strengthening of himself in the Lord is the exact opposite of what he did to first get into this mess. This is the very essence of repentance. Repentance is a turning away from a bad thing and a turning towards and an embrace of a good thing. 
And way back in Psalm, in, I'm sorry, chapter 27, verse 1, it begins by saying that David said to himself in his heart some things that were not true. So essentially, he consulted himself, and what he told himself wasn't true. And how different would these chapters have played out if the opening words of chapter 27 had not been, then David said in his heart, but rather, then David spoke to his heart all that God had done for him. Or then David spoke to his heart all that God had promised him. Or then David spoke to his heart all the times that God had protected him and delivered him and brought him out of trouble in the past. If in that moment of fear and temptation, David had not spoken lies to himself in his heart, if in that moment he had spoken truth to his heart, he probably would have avoided this entire span of time in which he wandered into a life apart from God. And essentially what David does now by strengthening himself in the Lord was to do the exact opposite of what he did at the beginning. He does those things. He speaks truth to his heart. He tells himself who God is. He tells himself who he is in relationship to God. And we, I feel confident in saying that because that is what we find in Psalms, which are a very, the expression of David's inner prayer life. When David's in private conversation with God, we have this rare view into what he actually talked about with God because they're recorded for us in the Psalms. And that's why I feel very confident filling in that blank. We might come to this line, what does it mean like for David to strengthen himself in the Lord? And we might just put a question mark next to that, except the Psalms answer the question. And the very first thing that he does after strengthening himself in the Lord was to call Abiathar the priest and inquire of the Lord what to do. You might remember earlier in our study, we came to that appalling chapter where Saul, in a fit of paranoid rage and jealousy, has all the priests in the land killed except for one. Abiathar escaped and he made it to David and he brought with him the ephod. The ephod was a special garment worn by the priests and contained in the ephod were these objects. We don't actually even know what they look like or how they worked, but they're called in the Bible the Urim and Thurim. And the priests would consult these things on behalf of the king. The king would come to the priests with a question. They needed to know God's will in some matter and they, the priest would consult the Urim and Thurim on behalf of the king or on behalf of the people. And that would give them some indication of God's leading and direction. And so very often before kings went to war or before they did something significant, they would consult the Urim and Thurim. And so what David does is he calls Abiathar, the priest, bring the ephod, I'm going to consult the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, which by the way is repentance, because at the beginning in chapter 27, who did he consult about going to the Philistines and beginning to live this double life. Well, he consulted himself. He was his own counselor. He didn't call for the ephod. He didn't consult God, should I do this thing? He just told himself some things in his heart, and he harbored, and then he acted upon. He was his own counselor, and it was disastrous. And here he repents of that way of living and making decisions. And instead, he turns to the Lord. He inquires of the Lord. 
David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? Pause with me here and consider what an incredibly humble question this is. Let me ask you, if some group of guys stole your family, would you ask the Lord if you should pursue them? (laughs) Most of us would say, God, I'm going after them. I'm asking for you to come with me and help me. But David doesn't assume anything at this point. This, is, this story, this chapter is really about David's repentance of the way he's been living and making decisions, the way he's been, his wayward drift. This is about him repenting. And an incredibly humble act, he says to God, should I go after them? Will you give me success if I do? And this is a very humble thing because he's not assuming anything. But God answers him. He says, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Basor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Basor. I'm just going to kind of gloss over the next several verses. I'll just tell you really quickly what they contain. In verses 11 through 15, they find a disgruntled Egyptian servant who'd been left behind by the Amalekite raiding party that had burned Ziklag to the ground and stolen everybody and everything. And he agrees to help them find the Amalekites, this group of people who have taken their families and their stuff, if they promise not to return him into the custody of his former Amalekite master. And then in verses 16 through 20, David fights the Amalekites. He defeats them and gets back everything and everyone that had been taken. That's a big relief, I'm sure, to have everybody back. And then in verses 21 through 25, those verses are concerning a policy that David David instituted whereby those who stayed behind at the brook, who were too tired to go on and actually take part in the fighting, they got equal share in the spoil as if they had been in the fight. And uh, we don't have time to dwell upon that or, or study its significance, but for right now, I just want you to know that that's there. But the real portion of Scripture that I want to finish on is this. In verses 26 through 31, we get a little bit more information. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoils to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negeb, in Jatir, in Arawur, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoah, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeremielites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Ormah, in Borashan, in Atach, in Ibram, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. And this marks a significant shift because up to this point, who has David been dividing his spoil with? With King Achish, the Philistine. And here again, this indicates a repentant heart. David is done doing that. David is now going to shift and divide the spoil from this raid with the elders of Judah. 
partly, in part, I'm sure, because the Amalekites had been raiding Judah's towns. And so he's giving them back what had been taken from them also. But previously, when he raided the Amalekites and brought things back, he split it with King Achish. This was his tribute money. He was kind of like a client king of the Philistines. And so he's paying his taxes. But I just want us to see this here because David in this chapter, this is all about repentance. And by the way, this is going to be a pattern we're going to see playing out time and time again with David. Remember, when we study these stories, we are not studying the example of a good man. We're studying the life of a man who is just like you and me. He is a complicated figure because he's a muddy mess of a man. Sometimes he is a shining example. Other times he's a cautionary tale. But in the final analysis, what is David? He's a fallen human being just like you and me. He needs a savior. And what this story is about is about a God who didn't just let David wander off to his destruction. He didn't let him just drift on up the coast. He goes after him and he called after him. That's what this whole episode is about. This is God saying, come back. And David responding. And David is going to have to do this time and time and time again. In my office down there on the dry erase board right now, I have a quote from Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday said, They say revival is only temporary. So is a bath, but it does you good. And here we might look at David's life and say, but this repentance, come on, he's just going to have to repent again and again and again. And I say, yeah, it is only temporary, but so is a bath. It does you good. When my kids were down there in the beach, when we're down there for four or five hours in the afternoon, how many times did I have to go up to the beach and call them back? Lots of times. They'd get lost in play, they'd forget, they'd drift off, I'd have to go after them and bring them back. And this is going to happen to David again and again and again. We're going to see this pattern play out again in our study of his life. And maybe you've seen this pattern play out in your life. Aren't you glad for a God of grace? A God who is patient with us. A God who says of himself, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Are you not glad for that kind of a God as your God today? One last thing in closing here. You know, last week we studied 1 Samuel 28, which is the story of Saul. Saul, who desperately um, is in a desperate shape, I guess, is the only way I can put it. And he tries to hear some word from the Lord, and the Lord is just stubbornly silent towards Saul. And so here we find it's, a, it's a really, in some ways, a very similar situation. Saul was scared. David is scared. Saul's in trouble. David's in trouble. Saul is facing an enemy who is merciless and cruel. David is facing a very similar kind of an enemy. Both wanted to hear from the Lord, but God answers David. And that's because David, in his repentance, is demonstrating to God that he's not just wanting something from God, he wants God. He's asking because he sincerely from the heart wants to do what God would have him to do. Saul was not a repentant man. He just wanted some knowledge of the future. 
He wanted a surety of the, what the future held, and he wanted God to tell him what was within his power to tell him. And if God couldn't tell him, he would go through a necromancer, which is what we saw in 1 Samuel 28. The way those two men approached God was very different. It reminds me, honestly, of the two thieves on the cross on either side of Jesus, right? They both called out to Jesus. They both spoke to Jesus that he had power, miraculous divine power, but one of them just wanted Jesus to help him get down off the cross so he could continue his love affair with the world. And insofar as the Bible records, Jesus never spoke a word of response to that thief on the cross. But the other one said, you're innocent, and I want to be with you. And Jesus answered that one. Because you see, the one, the one he didn't answer, wanted something from Jesus, but he didn't really want Jesus. And Saul wanted something from God, he didn't really want God, at least not to be God in his life. But David, when he comes to God in this moment when he strengthens himself in the Lord and when he calls to inquire of the Lord, he is doing that because he earnestly from the heart wants to do what God would tell him to do. And that's very different than the way that Saul approaches God. And so here we come again. We, see, we have seen throughout this study that David and Saul are compared and contrasted. And when we look at these two chapters, almost side by side, we see there are two characters held up in opposition to one another. And the question I'm confronted with is, which is most true of my heart towards God today? When you look out over the headlines and you see news of a pandemic, a health crisis, and your heart trembles in fear, and you go running to God with a prayer on your lips, let me ask you, do you want something from God? Or, or do you just want to be with God no matter what happens? Do you want God? Do you want knowledge of the future, or do you want to represent Him well in the midst of whatever is coming? You see, most of us don't have the humility of David to go to him, go to God and say, do you want me to pursue them? We come to God saying, here's what I'm doing, I want you to bless it. We don't come to him and say, what do you want me to do? That's a very different way of approaching God. And so this is a very instructive chapter for us about what it looks like to be truly repentant and how to approach God in times of trouble. When David strengthened himself in the Lord, his practice was this. He spoke back to God the truth of who God was, of all the things he has done in the past, of how he has delivered David in past times, how he is a protector, he's a rock, he's a high tower, he is a shield. And David also reminds himself of God's heart towards him. We see these two things in the Psalms, especially those I highlighted earlier. And so we just encourage you this week as you think about these things to draw before the Lord and speak to him in the same way. Strengthen yourselves in the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just uh, thank you for this chapter this morning. Father, I thank you for the way you have spoken to us in the midst of it all. And Father, we do thank you so much for your patience toward us. 
for being so gracious and kind and patient and merciful. Father, we just tend to drift off so many different ways. Father, we enter into sin so easily and then we're carried away by it. And then by the time we look around and get our bearings, we have drifted far, far from where we should be. And so, God, we're so grateful for the cross. We're so grateful for your grace towards us. We're grateful that you're a long-suffering, patient God. Thank you for the ways that you call us back to yourself. And sometimes, like David, that happens through a season of fear and crisis. And, Father, maybe that's what's happening in our hearts right now. Father, we're looking out over the world and we see scary things, ominous possibilities. And Father, we just ask you to be with us. What do you want us to do in the midst of this time? Father, we don't want to use you. You've already done everything that's necessary for comfort and hope. Father, I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to learn how to strengthen ourselves in you to approach you as David did and not as Saul does. God, give us the capacity for greater repentance and trusting in you. And Father, help us to represent you well. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.